0: Hi, this is Vanessa Teohaka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts.
1: You're listening to Bite Into It on Three Triple R uh, with Warren, Laura, and my name is Dan. It is uh, seven nineteen, and Warren, we have a guest.
2: We do have a guest. Uh, we have, uh, well, many of us have been doing a lot more uh, working from home, study from home, uh, childcare from home, uh, hanging out at home. Uh, and one of the features of that has been, uh, I guess, an increase in culture of keeping an eye on uh, what uh, employees uh, are up to. Um, and it does, uh, in some cases, um, really cross over into workplace surveillance. So uh, to have a look at that and sort of see what's been going on and um, what what that looks like and what we can do about it, we're now joined by uh, Professor Peter Holland of Swinburne University from the uh, Business School. He's a professor of, uh, I'm going to say Human Resources, but that's kind of not really quite right. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, Peter. But um, thanks for taking your time to have a talk what? to us tonight.
3: No problem. Yeah, well, yeah, Human Resources covers a multitude of things, I guess, but uh, probably more employee relations. But yes, Human Resources is my uh, standard title.
2: Gotcha. And um, w- what have we seen change, I guess, um, sort of post-pandemic uh, and, and sort of post the, the, the bug that's been getting around? What, what, has, what has been changing and, and um, should we be concerned about this?
3: I guess in terms of the areas of uh, mon- monitoring and surveillance that I've been looking at is that um, during the pandemic, when a lot of us were working at home, um, uh, there were, the, the research has identified that about eighty percent of private companies put what we call tattleware on their people's uh, their their employees' computers at home, which uh, by its by its nature is exactly what it says tattleware. It's watching you all the time. It's monitoring your key speed. It can. We take pictures of you, uh, various ways of monitoring and surveillancing you while you're in your own house. So 80% of, of organisations around the world uh, reported doing this, and in Australia it was 90%. So we're very much a surveillance society.
1: And And, Peter, is this technology that's been built specifically for this purpose, or are we talking about something that's been kind of done with a more altruistic aim in mind and uh, then repurposed?
3: Well, yeah, I, I think it comes under something we would call functional creep. That it's been, it's it basically has been there, but it's being being repurposed for, for this purpose. It was it's probably there for some levels to monitor and to veil, uh for at a benign level. But when so many of us went work then it I think effectively you could argue it was repurposed to actually make sure that people were doing what they would say they were doing but again for, from an again from an HR perspective that um, the concerns we have it, it, it really doesn't show much trust in your workforce, that if I can't see them, I better monitor and surveil them somehow. So that would be the disappointing side to me, rather than taking the opportunity to say, well, you know, I can trust my workforce, you know, if you, to get the work done, no, I feel I have to monitor and surveil them. And many people didn't know that this had been put on their computers as well. So that's the other side of this. Yeah, um, I was about to ask
0: you if you had a sense of how many people are aware this is even happening, or that there might be repercussions for them. Like, do you do you know any stats on like what the actual sort of awareness is in the workforces?
3: No, no. I, I, that's the key thing is that um, I picked up on this global study that it was eighty percent, in the AVC went and did a study of Australia and found it was around ninety percent. I don't know anyone who knows what has happened. Um, um, I guess because you don't you don't you don't assume. That your boss is going to be monitoring you when you're at home. You just assume that your tasks with your work. You might want to check in, you know, every so often. But again, I would like to know possibly whether this tattleware has been taken off. Now people are moving to a hybrid model of sometimes at work, sometimes at home. I would suspect not.
1: Is there a, an indication as to the kinds of industries that are just gravitating towards this, or is there no real rhyme or reason to it, and it's more more about the attitudes of the employers themselves?
3: Yeah, it's something we would call a synoptic. It, it, it can cover anything. And, and two examples would be the fact that I work, and for me, I work a lot at home, so I can be surveilled here as a white-collar professional. But equally, um, if you think about this, have you ever, have you ever tracked a, a parcel? Uh, my son was doing this today, trying to track a parcel that we, we'd ordered. If you think about it, you know where you can watch where your parcel is? That's, that's also tracking the driver. So that's been repurposed as well to monitor and surveil the driver and where the driver is and how many times the driver stops, et cetera. So while it's set up to say we're we're monitoring your parcels, it's also monitoring the driver, who you might argue is a blue-collar worker. So it doesn't discriminate. That's the the very thing with monitoring and surveillance. It just does not discriminate.
1: And, And, Peter, is this... Is it legal? I mean, we're talking about, I suppose, a we're in uncharted territory in terms of the number of people who have who are working remotely and not in the traditional office situations anymore well, and i'm guessing well, you know these pe- these people might have signed contracts well, well and truly yeah, a few years ago where this kind of stuff might not necessarily have actually been considered as something that you would be signing on to. Does it? Is it legal to be doing that kind of thing?
3: Well, I'd say it's not illegal. You're getting into a grey area, but i, I, I smile and it because if you think um, I don't know about you, but uh, every time I, when I log into work I have to click an OK button that I agree to all the terms and conditions. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't sit there and spend 20 minutes reading those terms and conditions. So I, I guess the, the argument is that it's the, it's the organisation's software and all they're doing is monitoring and surveilling their own Software so it's used properly. Yeah. One of the defaults is often, well, we make sure you're not, you're not on inappropriate websites or stuff like that, which is easy to fix because you just block them. You don't need to monitor and surveil people. You know, you're seeing this more and more in terms of some of the justifications. I'm sure you're aware of the Bunnings Kmart scenario where they yeah. were taking facial pictures of people. Um, the, I know the last time I was in Bunnings, you often walk in there and some some usually a student says hello to you and can direct you where you want to go, et cetera, and you come out and they say goodbye to you now. That's fairly good surveillance to stop theft, but they said that was what it's for. So, you know, I can't imagine trying to sneak a jackhammer out of Bunnings under my jacket with everyone watching you. So, but they said that was to monitor theft. Now, I find that, you know, a a little stretched to to be honest. And and they also found Kmart were doing it. Now, I think they're the same, effectively the same multinational organisations. But are they monitoring? which Bunnings you go to and then you go a Kmart afterwards and what do you buy at Bunnings and what do you buy at Kmart? I don't know, but I would not take their argument that it's a theft prevention mechanism too strongly in that sense. So um, these, these are the dangers we're finding with this functional creeper, that they've got the ability to use it and they're using it and when they get caught out there's some, I would say, a fairly weak excuse that it's, we're trying to protect our, our company or protect our workers um, But there's no real justification if you look into it more deeply
2: than that. What are some of the ways that uh, we could uh, protect worker privacy and and, uh, I I guess either ourselves kind of uh, take some steps just to, um, I I guess, reclaim some of the ground or even um, uh, legally, like should we be looking at laws or or drafting legislation to, to protect workers?
3: Yeah, it's actually a very good point you raised there. And, and the fourth thing I'd say is, and while laws are always being enacted, that, that the technology is the technology is basically a Formula One car, and the law is like your ordinary sedan uh, in terms of the speed that they both run at. But, that no one thought about this tattleware until the pandemic, and then it was identified. And it's a bit like using Zoom and things like that. All that was there, but we never used it. And I think by the time that the law catches up, the technology has moved on to the next level. Um, At the other extreme, when people find out, for example, that the speed of their, uh, their mass is being monitored, there are things called jiggers, people can actually get and you put the this is to put the jigger next uh, underneath your mouse and it will basically as it, the word says it jigs the mouse so you know it it gives the imitation that you're actually moving your mouse so people are finding ways around this stuff i'm not recommending it but all i'm saying is that when people find out this is happening they, they do find ways to get around it, uh, to manage the systems, but I do think that organisations should be upfront. I mean, if they're going to monitor you, then be upfront and say, "Well, we're surveilling your technology and what you're doing every few minutes." Mm. Um,
0: yeah, and certainly. Well- tie it back to a KPI or a measure of like your performance quality. Like, I feel like the sort of vague, I want to capture everything smacks a lot of the ad industry, right? Like, we're going to know absolutely everything about how you behave on yeah. a website, and like dot, 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 profit's going to occur. Yeah. And that sort of, it feels That's like right. the same kind of attitude from what you're describing, that people just want to know absolutely everything without maybe a clear actual measure they want to yeah. capture. Um, I, I'm I wondering, I, oh, sorry.
3: Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, that's that great thing with metrics, that, that if you can measure it, it's important, rather than why are we measuring? Sorry, yeah. I,
0: I was actually just going to ask you, um, I'm, I, I can imagine ways that people are sort of weaponizing this kind of surveillance in terms of employee performance, but I'm wondering if it also leaks out beyond sort of your job life into other aspects of life. I'm just wondering if you have any, any sense of, like, the impacts of, you know, these invasions of people's privacy in their homes or other things that can go wrong.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I, I was, I, I, one of the things that's been on the telly recently, I don't know whether you're aware of, is something called Hunted, which is a, basically a, a, a sophisticated game of hide-and-seek where people are sent. From Melbourne CBD on shows the China 10 high rate, and they have to effectively hide from the so-called law, the law, for a, uh, four weeks. What it showed you is the layers of of surveillance that go on from public transport through to going through the streets. through, And they showed you how it, it, you can track people's smartphones. So you can identify where they are by where their phone is within a few metres. You can also identify who they've spoken to, where they've been, when they contacted people. So there are immense layers that this, this show highlighted of, of surveillance that we have that people, people are simply not aware of, you know, from tapping your my key on and off to surveillance through the city through to um you know, registration of your car going through tolls and things like that the, the multitude of, of um, surveillance is daunting when you think of it and while a lot of it is benign it's out there and that's the danger it can potentially be weaponized if it's not managed
0: yeah and certainly we've already heard stories of you know, people who might be vulnerable, like women escaping domestic abuse or people who are otherwise, like, trying not to be found for good reasons, like, can have this kind of, uh, you know, right. the availability of de-identifying them can really, like, be a problem and uh, cause them personal danger. Um That's-
3: Facebook, TikTok, emails, all those type of things are, are easily monitored and surveilled. And, and the other thing as well is if, if you think back to the COVID app that wasn't too successful, uh, we, were, we were promised and promised and trusted it was only going to be used for COVID. And it turns out that uh, a couple of uh, police uh, in police in other states have been using it for other other purposes so you, yeah. you you really really get the concern that when someone someone has this this the power of using this and they say it 's only going to be used for this purpose you 've got to have checks and balances to make sure that they are actually used for that purpose and and not used for other other matters. I think the argument was they were using it to track down uh, potential criminals or something like that. But we were told that if you logged onto the app, it would not be used for anything but COVID. And when it's not used for COVID, it undermines people's trusts in the government, Mm -hmm. saying, trust us.
0: Yeah, exactly. I've, I've actually heard examples of Singapore using their COVID app to prosecute crime based on geolocation yeah. data. And they said the exact same thing. Oh, this is just for, you know, contact tracing and it's completely a medical and, you know, public health concern. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, it feels to me like government simply cannot keep its hand out of the cookie jar with this kind of tool. Like once it's there, it will be abused. You just have to wait yeah. and see how.
3: Well, that's right. I mean, the key things you made there about sort of uh, things like government's involvement in it. The government can potentially have access to a lot of this information. And you made the point of medical stuff there. I, I often wonder, I have a lot of friends who have these, these smart watches that take their heartbeat and, you know, everything that go. Where's that information going? has access to it? Um, I, I, I don't know, but I'm, I'm fascinated by this perception that the cloud is benign, that you put yourself in the cloud and it sits there passively. It's, it's only a matter of time before it can be hacked, or someone can then say, well, we need to use this information. And the, these are the type of things that just, just concern me. Uh, as I say, we, we've moved to the stage now where, where people are having their facial recognition or their fingerprint used as a default for the, their PIN card or getting into work. Um, the, 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 these, these, this information can be taken and, and misused, and it, it's a real concern.
1: Ted, De- definitely. P- Peter, if people are finding out that their workplace is perhaps surreptitiously monitoring the, them at their desks at home, what can they do in terms of you know protecting them, themselves and
3: their rights? Well, I guess the first thing is to you know it all depends what position you're in, but I think it's something that you would challenge. Your 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 management, or go to HR and say, is this true? This is happening um, because obviously it'll be different for different organisations. But again, I think being HR employee relations, you, you people have got a power relationship. So a bit, you know, if your employer tells you you're doing that, you've got to think, you know, a do I challenge them and what are the consequences? Or b is this a type of organisation? I really want to stay in. That's another way. With with this perception that we're at full employment at the moment, if you're not seen as a good employer, then these might be the consequences of not trusting your workforce. That they won't trust you, and they walk. I guess.
0: Can I add to that that you can do reviews anonymously on Glassdoor, and that might be a very nice way to make this publicly yep. visible.
3: That's right. Yes, glass doors very effective. If your your audience not know who that is, if you if you leave an organisation or somewhere you work, you can put a comment on there about your experience, and people do increasingly use these types of websites to identify good, bad, and indifferent employers.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's very important that um, these employers are held uh, up to a level of scrutiny that um, means that they're not going to be doing this kind of thing. Uh, prof- we've been speaking with uh, Professor Peter Holland from Swinburne University. Thank you so much for your time, Peter. It's a fascinating conversation. Could have done it for another half hour, but I'm afraid we've run out of
3: time. I'm sure the next time we talk there'll be some more new things coming along. So we look forward to talking to you then.
1: This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au
2: to find out how.
0: I'm Laura, and you're here with me, Dan, and Warren, and um, I wanted to have a little bit of a gas bag, if you'll indulge me. Um, There's some news that came out on Twitter a couple days ago from John Cormac. He is a famous game developer. Um, He's famous for having created Doom in the 90s, um, very much PC Gamerland, if that kind of paints a picture for you. And then more recently, in the recent last couple decades, he's been very much in the VR, the virtual reality space. And uh, he was one of the co-founders of the Oculus Rift, which was then purchased by Facebook, now meta um and then stayed on and worked with them for many years um, and is still working on vr but he has just announced that he has raised 20 million dollars of funding for a new company called keen technologies and he plans to work um, in that company on producing agi so just to start Anyone know what that is? Like out to the class. Any, any thoughts?
2: <laughs> Bueller, Bueller, Bueller. Absolutely not.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
2: no, I I hadn't heard of the phrase uh, until uh, until today. So, oh great, right. please well, let us know.
0: Gosh, yes, thanks thanks for the soft pitch, folks. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, AGI is a shorthand for artificial general intelligence. Um, it's usually used to describe what's thought of as um, the end point of this spectrum of AI. So what we have right now is usually called narrow or weak AI. And what that means is like, it's like an idiot savant. It's very, very good at a very specific task, but it's very, very bad at applying those same skills to any, task even something related so to give a very simple example you might have an image classifier that is very good at telling the difference between is this an orange kitten or a cheeto it's like it's nails it every time it's actually a hard classification problem and it does it great that same image classifier might be very bad at a more generic image classification problem like is this a bird a dog or a parrot or bird i already said uh i don't know cat Some other thing. So what you find is that these machine learning models that people are calling AI, probably a little bit loosely, to be fair, um, tend to be very good at a specific task, but tend to be very bad at generalizing or moving sort of around the same domain of topics. And certainly that image classifier, you wouldn't then apply to, say, playing a game of chess. It would be completely you know, it would be structurally wrong. It wouldn't have learned across any data that would give it any information. It just like couldn't even tackle the problem. Um, so this concept of AGI is this idea. Um, people often use this concept of human-like intelligence, but that's such a very vague term. In fact, arguably, AGI itself is a hard to con- pin down concept because humans are, as you may know, wildly variable. And the idea of human-like intelligence feels very loose to me, like how, how do you define that and how do, you, how do you say that you've crossed the line or, you know, met the bar? But to try and bring it back to something a little bit pragmatic, they probably mean models which are a little bit more generic and can be applied to multiple kinds of problems or maybe even have a bit more decision-making or problem-solving capacity, what the, the models that we currently have—they are very much pattern matching. They they look at a bunch of data and they try and find patterns, and then they predict or classify. But that's like roughly the mechanism. Um, but what they're not good is at, good at doing is problem solving. Like you couldn't show them a car with a flat tire and then say, "Okay, AI, what do I do?" Because it'd be like it's a car, man, fix it yourself. Like they could they could probably classify it for you, but what they probably couldn't do is do any kind of creative problem solving. They wouldn't be like, oh, well, you don't have the right tools, but maybe you can make a lever out of this metal in your garage. You know, like they don't have a concept of mind. They don't have, you know, anything that you would think of as like a, a human like sort of consciousness that could then apply to the problem.
1: So, so yes. So I guess when we're talking about, you know, HEI then compared to what we have now, we're talking about you know a more sophisticated level of problem solving, a more a, a, a step closer to the singularity. I suppose you could argue. You could argue. Um, why? Why has um, our, our, our friend at um, uh, decided <laughs> that this is uh, going to be something he wants to do?
0: Well, I mean. I'm going to be a little bit mean here and say it's like unbridled hubris. He, he, I I was listening to him speak. So he actually made this announcement on a podcast. That's a well-known tech podcast um, called uh, that that this guy Lex Friedman runs. And he was talking about what he'd been learning over the past couple of years and what he saw the problems were to solve. And uh, I mean, look, I'm being a little bit snarky and mean to be totally fair, but, and he is, he is like, arguably a very well-known problem solver. He's probably a genius. He's extremely smart. Um, but he basically said like, oh, there's going to be six hard problems in AI and I'm going to work them out and then daisy chain them and then boom, we'll have it. That was basically the sort of, that, that's. I'm, I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing, but that was one of the things he said was like, yeah, I think there's less than six key insights that need to be made We don't know what they are, but when we put them together in concert with GPUs at scale, and then the data that we have access to, then we get something that behaves like a human being or at least a living creature. And he kind of walks the statement back a bit, you know, like saying living creature means you might think about like dog intelligence or cat intelligence, which is, you know, still more than a machine as we currently have it, but, you know, maybe not setting the bar up at humans. But yeah, I am curious to know why a game developer thinks he can crack it when we've had literally, you know, like decades of the smartest minds.
1: He gave us doom. Putting themselves at this problem. (laughs) He gave us doom.
0: (laughs) Surely that's evidence. I mean,
1: maybe that's evidence enough that he is an innovator beyond anything (laughs) that we mere humans can possibly imagine.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, it's not unusual <laughs> that people confuse success with um, with, with relevance and, and gen- yeah exactly right. Um, yeah, I mean, I've made, I've made this toaster so I'm to... gonna to crack the atom. You know?
0: Yeah, I, I wonder if he maybe needs to ask himself if his intelligence generalizes beyond the domain he's good at because mm. he' he's very much a games programmer and a games like engine rendering modeler person. Which is a whole deep expertise. And also he's been working on virtual reality, which is, you know, you can imagine how that's got a lot of um, coherence or a lot of sympathy for that that previous, like, gaming domain. True. But this is a, a very he, different world of programming. That's and it. Can it's a he, very different expertise.
1: Totally. Can he change the tyre on a car? Like, we don't know. Like, can he look at a car and say, this, I, I need to be able to change this flat tyre myself? Is it, it – well, I'm going to ask the question – why do we do this? Is this something we should be doing? Is this like just because we can?
0: Well, I mean, this is, it's funny that you mentioned that because I, I was literally talking about this with my colleague before we hopped onto this like radio program. And, and I was saying like the thing I really tr- struggle with, with the concept of like AGI as a goal is like, but why, like what is, what, what problem are we solving with this? And like, what kinds of new problems might we like engender if we achieve it? because, let's be clear, if we create a machine that has anything close to a consciousness or a model of mind, then we introduce a million ethical problems, right? Like we now we're in like, is is it ethical to ask this machine to do this very repetitive task that I don't want to do? Um, is it is it appropriate to like trap it inside my one set of, you know, like if I can't afford to put it on the largest server bank possible and give it all the compute it possibly can want. Am I somehow like mistreating my AGI? Like, yeah, like these are, these are like actual problems that we will be facing if we do achieve this level of machine intelligence. Um, so I, like, I see a lot of pitfalls and I'm, I'm a little confused about what the potential applications could be. Um, I mean, to be front, to be totally blunt, like we have so many technologies that aren't really like being used to their potential currently. So, um, yeah, I like he did. He he offered a couple of hints about what he imagines, uh, like AGI to be, and he he mentioned something about this idea of a universal remote worker, someone who's doing what I imagine is sort of a white collar like computer job, um, perhaps not terribly creative but relatively repetitive. And he sort of said maybe we can make these universal remote workers we can train them to do some kind of task and so you know maybe maybe us office workers should be worried that like someone else is going to be writing my css and it won't be a human it'll be an agi i'm not sure um the kind of
2: the kind of weird thing about this is when when he uh, like i think it's interesting and exciting sort of on paper i, I agree with with all you're saying laura um but that one person can define what we need to know to create a general intelligence where they say it will it will know the world and it will know humans or know sort of human intelligence. Um, I, I'm trying to imagine how... I mean, humans don't understand um, the world. So how we can sit down there and on the back of an envelope say, we're going to sort of help it figure out um, figure out the world. Um, I reminded yeah. the... Um, Reminded of the the scientist in Cat's Cradle, um, who asks, "Like, can you prove anything to be quantifiably true?" And and in that particular story, nobody can. So I'm not. Yeah, I mean, hmm. you actually know this space really well. And 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 machine learning, it's it's not so much necessarily about the the six things that you put in, but being able to give it a start and 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 sort of off it goes. Um, I mean, hmm. is this is this too woo woo to sort of say, um, you know, can the world be known?
0: Well, look. I mean, he's, he's, he's obviously, like, a huge optimist, right? He's, he sees, like, the world is full of opportunities and, you know, everything about um, – I, I listened to him for about an hour earlier today just to try and, like, wrap my head around his point of view. And, um, I mean, I think, like, the short answer is I don't know and he doesn't know and I'm not sure anyone knows. Um, the slightly longer answer is is it possible for a single individual to make a significant contribution on the path towards – You know, but let's like maybe kick off the idea of AGI and just say like a strong AI, like something that's more generalizable or more, you know, more robust across multiple domains. Like, yes, absolutely. And could that be him? Like he is he does have a track record of making these relatively significant contributions basically on his own. Um, And he basically said the reason I want to do this is because I think I can do something by myself, whereas there are other domains where I would need a team and I don't really want to work in a team. Like that's basically what he said. So, uh, like, yes, possibly. It's it's hard to know whether a machine can have a. I mean, I guess like part of the question of like, can the world be known? Is does it need to be known in a in a human like way, or does it just need to be like interactable? Because if you can yeah, imagine the world as a set of like physical, tangible APIs that could be encoded into logic, and you can just know what's what sorts of interactions are possible, then maybe that is something that you can program. But if you have this concept of AGI as being like a human, it it becomes a much fuzzier goalpost for me.
2: Triple R
1: Laura, I I want to touch on this uh, AGI thing a little bit more. Like, I'm still not understanding what the motivation, I suppose, is for anyone to need to do this.
0: Well, I suppose it's the same as why we go to the moon or climb Mount Kilimanjaro, like not because we have to, but because we can or we want to prove to ourselves that we can. Um, so, I, I mean, this very much, it's obviously a thing that inspires us. It's something that's, uh, it, it features in science fiction from all eras. It's something that we talk about. um I, I don't know that we need to do it, and certainly I think a good argument is that maybe we need to develop a little bit more maturity around thinking about technological impacts um, before we tackle something this kind of existentially risky, both for the technology and for us. Um, but, you know, I'm also a dreamer, and I love, I love tech, and I love big ideas, um, and I, I hope to stay a technological optimist. So, you know, maybe this is something that we want to do Simply to prove to ourselves that we can, and in doing so, we'll discover some cool technologies that will have, like, you know, great practical applications in the world.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that's that's one way of looking at it. Like being being an optimist, I would like to think that yes, absolutely. But then I just watched the four Terminator movies from beginning to end, and <laughs> and so I'm like that that that's that's generally where where I, where I land on this kind of stuff. But I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's. Maybe it's uh...
2: (laughs) It's not going to be that way. Speaking of uh, speaking of uh, man made stuff, um, UFOs. Um, Laurie, you've been uh, keeping an eye on on, uh, UFO news.
0: Yeah, well, there was a, a little sort of addendum in a report to uh the intelligence authorization act for fiscal year 2023 in the u.s um where they kind of weirdly admit that they think that not ufo all ufos are not like man-made phenomenon that, that there are things they're like trying to keep an eye on which they do not understand and can't rule out the idea of an actual like alien um, intelligence or craft or presence in, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um and also they say that the threats are increasing exponentially, which I find that a little bit of a leap because if you don't know what it is and you can't sort of determine anything about it, then is how it do you threaten yeah. yeah yeah. Well I'm
1: yeah. I've I've always been of the belief that yes, there is absolutely something out there. But if we can't find them, then what makes anyone think that they can find us? Mm. Like, I, I, I would hazard a guess to say that considering the age of the universe and how long it took us to be here in terms of the age of the universe, we're to, like it, it feels unlikely that another species or whatever it is got there first. Unless their star was, you know, very, uh, very our sun-like and their planets were, you know, all aligned and everything happened... Earlier on in the formation of the universe than I did, but it's it, like it seems like you know the, the, what our environs happened as quickly as these environments could happen. So I, I fully, hmm. yeah, I don't know. But having said that, if yeah, I, I reckon that there will have to be something out there that's smarter than us because we, we're, we're, yeah.
0: Gosh, I hope so. Wouldn't yeah. that be nice? It would be nice. I mean, look, I just want to share one little. Fun nugget from this report, which is they they have this concept of a cross domain transmedium threat. Now, how much how much weasel words is that nonsense? And this is a, something by the Pentagon's definition is that something that can move from water to air to space in ways we don't understand. Um, now, just call it a cool moving thing, and I'm there. <laughs> like that's a great idea. I'm 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 actually really intrigued by this, and I want to understand more about like what things they've been tracking and mm. how they kind of came up with this concept of moving through, uh, you know, like various materials in ways that we don't understand or that I'm guessing like faster than light maybe or, yeah, you know.
1: that was going to that- be my question because, like, as far as I can tell, we move through water and space and air, you know, reasonably easily without too much mm. of a problem. Yes. In order to do it in a different way, it would have to be either faster or through teleportation, I guess. Um yeah, maybe may, yeah. maybe that's it. I don't know. Uh, we we we've, before we wrap, we do have a quick event. Um, so uh, Silicon Beach virtual pitch night. So uh, you, uh, bleh, I can't even talk in Ballarat. If if you happen to be uh, in Ballarat next week on the first of September at five thirty, uh, well, you actually you don't even need to be in Ballarat. It is virtual. You can check it out if you head to um, uh, meetup dot com and search for uh, Silicon Beach. You can pitch your idea or startup. Um,